0: Another very special stay at home self quarantine episode of the Brando cast. God damn it. This has been a long time coming. I'm so fucking excited. I've got goosebumps up and down because today is going to be another barn burner. Many times on this podcast, you've heard me talk about the importance of karaoke in my life. Well, there are a few individuals walking the planet Earth who are as crucial to that process as my guest today oh he's also a member of matchbox 20 he drummed so fucking hard in that band that he had to switch to guitar he's here ladies and gentlemen please welcome mr paul ducet
1: brandon smith oh i have missed that voice <laughs> although i do i do get to hear it periodically on my radio and podcast
0: well dude i i mean look it, it's been way too long i think i see a new tattoo on your arm could you hold that up to the camera so i could see
1: I got this one, which little, little, you know, child action here. <laughs> and then we got also pretty much all of my tattoos are related to my my, my child, uh, except this one. <laughs> this was the, the, the number 21 that we we all got some version of a 20.
0: That is super fucking amazing. Um, before we get into our discussion today. Um, with Paul Doucette, we're going to be talking about Peter Gabriel. Uh, would you just please bring me up to speed on all things Paul Doucette? What are you working on? What are you scoring? What uh, give me some Matchbox news? Just well,
1: I'm, go. I'm, I'm, I, at the moment, I'm doing a Matchbox record, um, <laughs> which is our first record in ten years. So that's been fun and exciting, in kind of all the things that band records are, which is sometimes the opposite of fun and exciting. But it's been it's been good. <laughs> It's, uh, that's been going on for, it was funny. That was something that was never going to happen. Like we were kind of done. I had sort of written it off with like, we're, we're, we're going to tour still. We'll probably tour till the end of days, but I don't know that we'll ever make new music again. And then w- literally within a few months, we were like, okay, let's make a record. Okay. That is so fucking exciting.
0: Are you guys holed up in a castle in England? Uh, oh, you know how
1: bad I want that? I want that so bad. I just wanted to do like I was wanted to do like some sort of like um, TV sh- TV version of that that was like kind of like that scenario but done like faulty towers it would be amazing <laughs>
0: <laughs> but are you guys together or are you working remotely and then coming both.
1: back together we've done both so like at first I couldn't participate because I was I was I, I, I do the music for a show called for All mankind on Apple and I was working on season three of that show. When everyone was kind of like, you know, wanting to get together and make a record, so I couldn't participate at first, and so they did a couple things. They flew to New York. We're working with a guy named Greg Wattenberg who has a studio in New York, and on the pe- bringing it back to Peter Gabriel, our engineer on this record is is a man named Kevin Killen who engineered So. So bringing that back, yeah, holy shit, I know, yeah, it's it's a life highlight for me.
0: Well, uh when we get into our discussion of Peter Gabriel, uh maybe he said something to you. We'll 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 figure that out as we go along. But are you having fun? That's all I need I'm to fun. know.
1: I'm having fun. And I'm and I'm really happy with what's what's happening with what's coming out. We're about we got about fifteen songs that we're that we really feel good about, which is a good place to be. And they came together relatively quickly. I mean, we had a bunch more that like, you know, that process of making a record, especially when you're in a band, because you can no one is harder on your stuff than the guys that you've been playing with for thirty years. Like, <laughs> and you know, at that point, I, it's it's nice now because like, there's a period of time like when you're in the beginning, when you're in a band, you're making a record. Like, everybody is like, this idea is my everything, and I have to fight to to the death about this one idea for this one three second part of this song. And if I don't get this idea in, all hell is going to fucking break loose. And it's, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And then, you know, as as you get a little older, you're like, yeah, it's three seconds. <laughs> 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 I got an issue. Ah, yeah. but,
0: but see, but the cool thing is, the cool thing is, you guys have been around for a while now. We
1: have been around for a while.
0: You know, and that's the kind of shit that breaks up bands in year eight,
1: nine, and ten. So the thing that works for us is that we've been around for a long time, but we never work together. Mm. It's like this. Mm. Like this is our first record in ten years. Our record before that was our first record in like our first full record in ten years. We had made like a kind of we did a greatest hits and did uh, like six or seven songs. I don't remember how many with Mr. Steve Lillywhite also bringing it back to to Mm -hmm. Peter Gabriel. (laughs) And so we don't work. You know, we don't work a lot. We've done since two thousand and twelve. I've toured twice and made one record
0: with these guys amazing amazing
1: wow to our longevity never work together
0: (laughs) well but now but now fans are psyched because you guys are going to go back out on the road in
1: 2023 yeah we were supposed to go out in 2020 and then you know the world had other plans and then we were going to do 2021 and the world still had other plans uh in 2022 it became a little bit hard for us because we have some we have some um you know, spe- circumstances in our camp—that's specific to us—as far as the whole COVID thing goes. So we kind of, we couldn't make this this time happen either. So now we are coming out in 2023. We've kind of figured out how, crossing our fingers, how we've we can do it. Well,
0: look, I I think that's fucking amazing because there there are two things in my opinion. First of all, everyone's getting COVID out on the road, which is insane. I, it. I mean. Uh, I've had it twice. I got it once at the Foo Fighters. I yeah. went to the goddamn Foo Fighters show at the Forum in, what was that, late August of last uh, yeah. summer. Yeah,
1: somewhere around there. And, and
0: three days later, I was uh, in bed. Brutal. Um, but, um, you know, everyone's out on the road. and Everyone's getting COVID and everyone's having to cancel gigs and, and whatnot. But two, everyone's out on the road. Yeah. So there's like a glut of shows right now.
1: There's a glut of shows. We're doing one show this year. We're doing a show in Newfoundland, which... Um, I have to start practicing for it because I realized like there's uh, there's songs I was like I haven't played the song in yeah. ten years. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> um, but we're doing one uh, show in Newfoundland, and you know, just putting that together is it's just harder than it's ever been.
0: Yeah. Oh, songs. I bet. Well, I know. You know, um, uh, I as Paul knows, I do a radio show with his brother-in-law, Rock Tales, on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. and we have a lot of music industry talk. And um, <laughs> our buddy Richard
1: Sheltinga, <laughs> love listening to, it, by the way.
0: Richard is always giving us music biz insider information about, you know, the business of touring. And yeah. Holy shit. How fucking expensive is it in 2022 to tour? Oh. Like that's crazy it's too. Crazy.
1: I mean, the cost you have to build into touring now it's that you never had to think about before. It's insane. I mean, you figure if you have to bring on testing for all the people that work for you, I mean, like, you know, upwards of 50 to 60 people work on these tours. 50 mm-hmm. these people Just- every single day. Like that's, that's a lot of money. That's a
0: lot of money to say nothing of the cost of gas for those wonderful tour buses uh, that oh, Matchbox Twenty has. You
1: that was the <laughs> no, one. That was the one silly line thing when when those when the gas prices shot up, we had already postponed this this year's tour, and I was like, oh well, that worked out pretty good because <laughs> we would have been in the middle of it, and those prices would have, and we wouldn't have budgeted for that because how would we have known? <laughs>
0: Right. How would you have known? All right. Well, dude, that is so fucking exciting. Uh, I'm so fucking excited to see you. I'm I'm going to be lame and I'm going to pitch one thing. Do it. Because I, f- I feel this on a cellular level. When you guys go out, you can tell Rob that I said this. Please consider doing one cover. And that is a cover of the baby's head first.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Kyle, our guitar player, has met for, for the past 15 years had a working relationship with Mr. John. Wait, he's what he's produced records for John. He's gone out and played shows with John. So Kyle knows all that stuff. Oh, oh, okay. Well talk to Kyle because I honestly
0: think it's, that's the greatest song that matchbox never wrote.
1: I remember you bringing this up before.
0: Okay, good. Well, uh, Because I I feel it. I feel it so strongly. I can hear it. I can, I can hear it and I can see it. And I think, and it's, it's such a fucking amazing song. You guys are a fucking amazing band. I'm so excited. So, can I, so let's. While we're talking about Matchbox,
1: can I tell people your important role in the world of <laughs> Matchbox Twenty? Please. For those Matchbox fans listening who do not know this, the title of our greatest hits, "Exile on Main Street," a mainstream, sorry, "Exile on Mainstream," was brought to us by one Mister Brendan Smith. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It, it it might be my greatest accomplishment in life. It
1: is it's uh, <laughs> by far the greatest album title that, that we have ever had, if not one of the greatest album titles of all time. <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, oh, so awesome. Uh, well, I appreciate you mentioning that to the fans. I hope the Matchbox fans are, are listening to this because uh, today – We're gonna have a really fun discussion. As you know, regular listeners of the podcast, when I ask my guests to come on, uh, I say, give me a topic. I wanna hear about your favorite band or your favorite artist. And today, Mr. Paul Doucette uh, has picked, well, one of the giants, one of the icons, one of my favorite artists. Um, Someone that we've heard a little bit about before when we had a discussion about the band Genesis with Mr. Michael Penn. Quick tangent, you can go back and listen to that. But without further ado... Born on February 13th, 1950, Peter Brian Gabriel is an English musician, singer, songwriter, record producer, and activist. He rose to fame as the original lead singer of the progressive rock band Genesis, but launched a successful solo career in 1975. His 1986 album, So, is his best-selling release and is certified five times platinum in the U.S. Gabriel has been a champion of world music for much of his career, and has also been involved in numerous humanitarian efforts. Gabriel has won three Brit Awards, six Grammys, and 13 MTV Music Video Awards. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Genesis in 2010, followed by his induction as a solo artist in 2014. Uh, For the podcast today, Paul, I've just put together some very simple notes from Wikipedia and also some of my own. We're not gonna do a super deep dive into Peter Gabriel's history because it's so fucking vast. I now know Just his s- middle
1: name is Brian, which I never knew. <laughs> <so> that's-, <laughs> that's a pretty deep dive. Uh, I
0: love it. All right, so tell me, what does Peter Gabriel mean to you?
1: Peter Gabriel's come to me in various different ways throughout my entire musical life. And fr- I first came to Peter Gabriel probably like the way that most people did, especially you know our age and. Growing up in Pittsburgh, you had WDVE, which album-oriented rock. And they, um, you know, you had, so you knew Salisbury Hill, you knew um, Games of the Frontiers, you knew like kind of that air that sort of uh, thing for Peter Gabriel. But when I became a drummer, when I was, well, I guess I started playing drums when I was 13, um, I heard So. And the drumming on that record is so incredibly phenomenal that I sort of went into it for that. It wasn't necessarily as much about Peter as it was about manyukache's drumming. And so I kind of, that was really my way in. And and then as I sort of kind of absorbed that and then kind of got more into, you know, growing into what I wanted to do musically, I started to really listen to what Peter Gabriel was doing. And then that just sort of opened it up. So like the way that his, his, his process for making records is kind of genius in my opinion it's kind of frustrating in a lot of other people's opinions it's a way i personally like to work which is uh, it's a very sort of try this try this try this try this try this no but this little thing right here i kind of like so i'm going to take this and i'm going to try to expand this and it's like it's like sculpting but he you know he was doing it in a way back then that most modern records are made now like most people make a record on pro tools or they make a record on logic or they make a record on you know they're, they're making a record on your phone you know, he was doing that with late 70s, early 80s technology then, so kind of paving the way for that stuff. But it's like him as a songwriter, him as a, his, as a lyricist, I mean, everything about his, his approach is interesting to me. It's the kind of thing that you like. You, you can kind of keep going back and go, oh, I didn't notice that before. I didn't notice that before. I've been listening to this for 40 years. I've never noticed that before.
0: <laughs> this, this is such a dumb question. Did you, when was the first time you saw him live?
1: Oh, I didn't see him live until I was much older. You know, when growing up in Pittsburgh, how long did you live in Pittsburgh? Uh, well, I lived in Pittsburgh for
0: the first 13 years of my life, (laughs) but both sides of my family, uh, were, you know, uh, Mount Washington, Greenfield, Mount Lebanon, you know, the entire fucking city, mostly all the South Hills. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh where the, uh, right. So, um, so, I have. So, in my musical DNA, WDVE in the 70s was just nothing but The Who, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin Beatles, Led Zeppelin.
1: Seeger. Don't forget they had <laughs>
0: Donna Seeger going on. Seeger. Really love Bob oh, Seeger. Bob Seeger. And then, of course, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, yeah. Yin's going down to see uh, Donna Igloo to see
1: uh, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> the Caesar Engler presents. A De Caesar Engler production. Which, uh, um, you know they had an entertainment tax? Did you know about this? Like, they had a ten—I think it was a ten percent entertainment tax at the time. I don't remember what it was, but so a lot of bands sort of passed over Pittsburgh. So wait, wait, well, wait, wait! Time out. The the Civic Arena, yeah, where most of the
0: big rock shows were, yeah. they had a, a special tax—an entertainment
1: tax that that existed for a period of time. So now, so I, I could be totally wrong about this. Peter Gabriel could have come a million times, but I at, by the time I was interested in Peter Gabriel. I just never, ever heard him coming to Pittsburgh. So I didn't see Peter Gabriel until I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s.
0: Understood. Yeah, I, I didn't see him until the So Tour, which I saw at the Philadelphia Spectrum, and then again in Chicago, uh, because Peter Gabriel really didn't come to me until the So Record. And then I went backwards. So let, let, let's just start at the beginning here. Let me read some more notes about Mr. Peter Gabriel, and then we'll really get into it. I'm the man. From early 1967 to the spring of 1975, Peter Gabriel was the lead singer of Genesis, a band he formed with his friends Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford at the Charterhouse School in Surrey. Though the band achieved great success in the prog rock world after six studio albums, a live record, and years of constant touring, Gabriel was ready for a change largely due to some creative differences within the band, Gabriel's disillusion with the music business, and his desire to spend more time with his young family. During a stop in Cleveland, Ohio, on the band's Lamb Lies Down on Broadway tour, Gabriel informed his old friends that he would leave the group at the end of the tour. The news stunned fans of the group and left commentators wondering if Genesis could survive without him. Gabriel's exit ultimately resulted in drummer Phil Collins reluctantly taking over on lead vocals. Uh, Again, quick tangent, um, I did Peter Gabriel-era Genesis with Michael Penn. If people want to listen to that, that was a very deep uh, discussion about Genesis with the great Michael Penn. Uh, It's one of his favorite bands of all time. It It is such a rich history just right there, 67 to 75, starting a band with your, uh, you know, your fancy public English school friends, just inventing art and prog rock on a visceral level, honing his chops as a performer, coming up with wild, wild, crazy outfits that would be a signature of his years in Genesis, and then having the courage to leave a band at the height of their then success. And then forget the the, the subject of Phil Collins taking over and <laughs> leading the band to uh, places that few bands on earth ever get to. I mean, I mean, it's a crazy story.
1: That's a crazy story. I mean, I'm the same way with Genesis, by the way, I came to Genesis Genesis through Abacab and through Duke and those records. Like, so the only thing I knew of Peter Gabriel Genesis was Lamb lies down on Broadway. Cause that was the song that got played on WDVE. Like that was all I knew. And, I, I, I gotta say, I still, as much as I love Peter Gabriel, and, and and I would say if I had to list my my biggest musical influences across the board, like because you know he influences me as 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 a songwriter, as a as a drummer, as a musician, as a film composer. Like he's done something great in a lot of different areas. So, but I never go. I almost never go back to to Peter Gabriel era Genesis. I skip that. I skip that, and I and I do will admittedly skip the Fripp record. <laughs> which I'm sure we'll get to because we're going in order. Um, and that's nothing against Robert Fripp because he's fantastic and a genius. But there's something about that, that record just doesn't come together for me.
0: People listening, quick tangent people listening, there is a 29 minute video. It's a 29 minute live video of Supper's Ready, which is Genesis in 1973 on the Foxtrot Tour. One song, 29 minutes, many different parts, <laughs> many different costumes. Uh, if you're curious, get into it. It's on YouTube. It's beautiful.
1: Um yeah, as like a 50-year-old band. I can't get with any, anyone who's like, at that point, what are they, 23? 23, you're going to play a 30-minute song? No, that's too much for me. I can't get with that.
0: Uh, uh, totally understood. But in my brain, they look like they're in their late 40s. <laughs> Even <laughs> Right? Do you know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Here's, here's a, an important question. Give me your version of Pittsburgh as a young dude.
1: I mean, Pittsburgh was, you know, I grew up in, in the late 70s, early. I was born in 72, so I grew up, you know, 70s, early 80s. I mean, it was very working class, as as we know, um, and it was very rock. I mean, it, if you watch Stranger Things, that is Pittsburgh 100%. It's like some people are like, oh, this is like a this Spielberg. But I was like, no, this is like. I I knew these kids. Like, you know, we did play D&D. We did, you know, it was about um, sleeping out for concert tickets. It was going to see the laser light show, you know, that kind of stuff. That's what you did. It it was getting in a car on a Friday night and driving around the parking lot of the Hills department store, (laughs) going across the street to the parking lot of the Murphy's Mart and then stopping going through getting some fries from McDonald's and then going and sitting in the Burger King parking lot with your chicken sandwich. And that was Friday night and Saturday night until the roller (laughs) rink opened.
0: (laughs) The, The great thing about Pittsburgh to this day, when the Steelers are beating someone at a home game at the beginning of the fourth quarter, they play over the Heinz Field PA system. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life from the long (laughs) arm of the law. They play that whole fucking song. They play fucking renegade, and the place goes nuts, crazy. Yeah, they've been doing this for years. You know, to the point where the players expect that little weird jolt. I love it. They get like that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like you know, sticks sticks
1: kansas oh huge huge <laughs> you know and you, that that period of time too because like pittsburgh was on top of the world because you had the pirates you had the penguins you had the Steelers, and everyone was the best and all the like kind of like you had your franco harris mean joe green like and being a little kid like i was never a sports guy but even i love that stuff and my well, mom, it was my mom it, it, pizza hut and, wait, wait and, say, say that one more time. My mom worked at Pizza Hut at the time, and at, in Latrobe, where they—that's <laughs> where they would practice. And so they would come in occasionally. My mom would bring home pictures of her with, with various Steelers, and I would like take them to school. Be like, my mom knows famous people.
0: Right, that's such a Pittsburgh thing. Like Lynn Swann came into Pizza oh, Hut. I don't even- <laughs> St. Vincent's, that was the college uh, in La Trobe where they used oh, yeah. to, to practice. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill. Peter Gabriel One, I a.k.a. AKA car, car, was released in February 1977 and reached number seven in the UK. Its lead single, Salisbury Hill, is an autobiographical song about a spiritual experience on top of Salisbury Hill in Somerset. It's about being prepared to lose what you have Uh, for what you might get, said Gabriel. It's about letting go. Of course, most fans consider Salisbury Hill to be a farewell to his old band Genesis. Gabriel toured on this album with an 80-day tour from March to November of 1977 with a band that included guitarist Robert Fripp and the great Tony Levin on bass. In late 1977, Gabriel started recording the second Peter Gabriel solo record in the Netherlands with Robert Fripp as the producer. Fans often refer to this album as Scratch. Released in June of 78, the album went to number 10 in the UK and number 45 in the US. Gabriel's tour for the album lasted from August to December of 78. On this tour, Gabriel and his band shaved their heads. Sir, has Maxbox ever made a similar move? We don't make that kind of commitment, period. <laughs> There's no we don't have that level of commitment in things. I think you you would have to be, you would have to have uh, Peter Gabriel as your leader. Yes. And throw and know that you have to throw in hundred percent.
1: Well, uh, all of get, those guys work for Peter Gabriel. So if I was in Peter Gabriel's band, he was like shave your head, I'd be like okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. whatever you want, whatever you want to do, man. You know
0: my recollection of late seventies and early eighties Pittsburgh is it. It was really hard to be
1: alternative. I had no idea what that was like. You know, like living in you know living in Los Angeles for the past thirty years. How crazy is that? Is that right? Wow. Yeah, no. Yeah. It's, probably. Oh no, that's not right. 20 something years, but uh, but almost years. You know, and and, and and like people I knew who grew up here, like they had a, di- a completely different music experience growing up because like the, we didn't get an alternative sort of station outside of you know. You you did have public radio, you did have a NPR, uh, YEP, um, but I didn't know I didn't know about that as as a thirteen year old kid. So we didn't really get one until I was probably eighteen, and it was an AM station. Wow! And so you had <laughs> that was the best we could do.
0: Yeah, it was impossible. I don't even remember Pitt having like uh, a college radio station.
1: I mean, if they did, it had like zero zero power like <laughs> you could get it outside of the, of the radio station and that's about it
0: i remember visiting my uncle my uncle bobby at penn state yeah in the early 80s and they penn state had an alternative station that was the first time i ever heard hit me with your rhythm stick by ian drury and the blockhead wow and, and that was like that was martian yeah. You know, because for me, the, really, the alternative music and different music, the kind of music
1: that Peter Gabriel was making. Well, was college that, music back then. They used to call it college. It was like alternative. I don't remember the, that phrase being right. It was always like, do you listen to college music? Right. And the
0: answer was no, uh, unless you lived in a city that had a cool college station. But it was MTV for me oh, totally. in the early '80s that was like the conduit for all the sort of like that style of music, that non-classic rock.
1: But yeah, uh, but some. But I gotta say though, some kids got the memo because I remember being, you know, like being around 14 and like. There was there was always someone who was like wearing cardigans before everybody else and had asymmetrical <laughs> hair before everybody else. I'm like, well, how do you know about this? Because I, I I don't know where you get this information, which is so weird today to think about. Like every kid has the wealth of everything ever made and can hear ever ever ever. It's so the the musical tastes are just like astounding. What's also kind yeah. of cool I got to say is I don't I don't know about this from from actually yeah for, like in our our world. You, If you liked this, you couldn't like this. You were so identified by the t-shirt of the band you wore or, you know, the music that you listened to that you couldn't go outside that. And, you know, a- as a parent, I can say that this generation doesn't have that at all. They just like what they like. That's an amazing point because
0: I am, as you know, you know me, I am so guilty of being the guy who tried to police everyone in their lanes. Yeah. You know, I I was a dick about it. I was a dick about metal. I was a dick about college rock in the late 80s, early 90s. I was a dick about more interesting music in the 90s. And now I realize, like, no, it's so much more fun to love everything. I love Sonny and Cher as much as I love Iron Maiden now.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. But I can say, though, that role, I think, is very important in our our world. Because without a you or... Someone like you, there wasn't anyone there to sort of guide you into the thing because there are people who might never have gone down a metal road had there not been for that dick. who was like, what the fuck are you listening to? Listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I, guilty. Guilty as charged. Um, you
0: know, a, a quick tangent. Uh, I had Keith Morris, the lead singer of The Circle oh, wow. Jokes on this podcast. And he flat out said that he and his buddy got the idea to start black flag. That was the, uh, at a journey concert.
1: Are you serious?
0: Yeah. And he thinks that the journey concert was at the long beach arena or whatever. You know what I mean? So like that, that is like such a detail. That's like so important, but he was like, well, back then on the sunset strip, you could see parliament and then you could see the Edgar winter group. Yeah, Like, so it was all, it was all mixed. It didn't I, I think corporate America started putting us in a box.
1: Yeah, it, um, it does seem like that kind of existed mainly in our generation. I mean, I don't know, maybe in the sixties. I, I think because I remember you know, I've definitely talked to people who were like, you know, you couldn't like you couldn't like Frank and like the Beatles.
0: Right. Yeah, know? right, right, right. Um, when did you when did you first get into
1: drumming? When I was thirteen. I wow. like the kids and my like me and a couple friends. They wanted we wanted to start a band and they had guitars, so nice. it was like all right, well, I'll play drums.
0: It's the classic question on this podcast. What was the name of your first band?
1: Oh, Altered State. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. After I mean, definitely after the movie, we, we like went around, you know, and 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 I I, I remember I, I found it because I was looking through the TV guide and I saw Altered State on there. I was like, oh, that's cool. We rented out a VFW and got <laughs> yes. um got other bands in the area there was the big band in my school was a band called sinister (laughs) (laughs) how fucking great is that (laughs) you want to guess what they sounded like but they they were the cool like they were they were the like the the you listen to fucking journey fuck you listen to this they were those guys (laughs) i was (laughs) petrified of them so scared of them uh, I can see their photo in the yearbook. I bet their hair oh, was e- epic. <laughs> epic. Well, one one guy who I later I will now admit completely stole his look, but he had the sort of like all long in the front, but nothing else going on. The simply red. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, and after we left high school, I was like, I'm going to take that look. <laughs>
0: Nothing would be more fun than seeing Sinister at the Monongahela Mall on a Saturday afternoon. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, was right? the, the Gateway Mall. Oh, Yours was the Gateway Mall. The Gateway Mall. Uh, uh, there, uh, uh, the, you, you'll need to do this. There's a great video on YouTube. Uh, in the South Hills, the big mall, it was South Hills Village, and then there was Century 3. Oh, yeah. The, fucking amazing, huge, giant mall in the South Hills of, of Pittsburgh on, on Route 51, Route 51, And uh, it's now empty, completely empty. So, there's a lot of oh, it's still there. There's a lot of videos of of people getting in, getting inside, and taking just unbelievable video of you know, it's apocalyptic, it's Logan's Run, it's like the strange, like you know, trees growing up out of the floor. Peter Gabriel recorded the third solo record, Peter Gabriel III, a.k.a. Melts, in England in 1979. He developed an interest in African music around this time and drum machines, and later hailed this record as his breakthrough. The album has been credited as the first Peter Gabriel record to use gated reverb on the drums, creating a very distinct progressive sound. Note, Bill Collins played drums on the song Intruder. Atlantic Records, Gabriel's US distributor, which had released his first two records, refused to put it out. Gabriel said an American A&R person came over in the middle of recording, and other than attempting to make one track sound like the Doobie Brothers, which he failed to do, he was convinced that the album was much too esoteric. Gabriel then immediately signed with Mercury Records. Released in May of 1980, this record went to number one in the UK for three weeks and peaked at number 22 in the US. The singles Games Without Frontiers went to number four and Bico went to number 36 in the UK. After a handful of shows in late 1979, Gabriel toured this record from February to October of 1980. The tour marked Gabriel's first instance of crowd surfing when he fell back into the audience in a crucifix position. This stunt will become a staple of his live shows. All right, we have a rare opportunity for you maybe to comment on some music business kind of stuff. Okay. One, his his uh, Atlantic Records, Hating melt because they didn't hear any hits.
1: Yeah. I mean, how classic is that? Classic. I mean, it's like, we're also on Atlantic. Um obviously, you know, not not the same. It's not the same company anymore, obviously. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, we we had somebody who we had that happen to us on our first record was we they wanted an update and we sent six songs that we had done and they were like we don't hear a single we want to pull them out of the studio and our management and, and producer at the time sort of fought for that not to happen but on that in those six songs were like basically our first four singles <laughs> <laughs> you know and it's, it's we've definitely had that experience i think every band or every, every everyone who has a record deal has had that experience because at the end of the day nobody fucking knows nobody knows <laughs> if people act like they know they don't know you could we've had songs that w- that we thought were like this is a sure thing. If we have ever come, you know, and at that point we've had some success in, 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 in the world. And we were like, we know what we're talking about. This is by far going to be one of the biggest song of the record. And it just does nothing. It just, nobody even pays attention to it. You, no, nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah, I love the idea go.
0: that a guy trying to make Peter Gabriel sound like the Doobie, like brothers. The Doobie
1: brothers. At that point, <laughs> just stop the conversation. You are obviously so far away from the goal. But you can't even have a real conversation about anything. Yeah, that is a
0: that is an inherent misunderstanding of the that's artist that you're standing in front of. <laughs> was, you
1: can't get much... I mean, nothing against the Doobie Brothers, but it's like, those are two completely different things. This is successful. We want to sound like this because this is successful. And, and if, the, if you're successful, then I get to move up in the world and I get to say that I'm more successful.
0: Uh, by the way one of the concerts that I saw in the fall, cause I went to a whole bunch, even after I got sick at the Foo Fighters was the Doobie brothers at
1: the forum. Oh, no, I bet that was phenomenal.
0: I, it, it was Michael McDonald. Now again, you know, Paul, Paul knows me incredibly well. Uh, I, you know, an iron maiden shirt is a part of my daily, uh, wardrobe, but God damn it. It was so fun to turn my brain off and just enjoy it. Yeah. And every time Michael McDonald sang the, the place went, crazy. I bet. I bet. And then when they that they they played a lot of like, you know, album cuts that I didn't know, because, you know, we know every Doobie Brothers hit. It's just a part of our DNA. Talk about Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Doobie Brothers all day. (laughs) But um, when they get into the final like eight, nine Hits in a row to close out the show. Yeah, you know, Black Water and Long Train Running and you know, minute by minute and what a fool believes. Like it's undeniable how fucking amazing they are. Wait a
1: minute, hold up. We we need to do a segue for a second. What McCartney shirt are you wearing? It's just a. It's just a. It's just a, oh, the Wings logo. That's it. Got it. I, I, okay. That's not a tangent. Yeah,
0: that's, that's a good a, one. That's a good one. It's just a. It's a. Yeah, it's a, just just a Wings shirt. Who I loved. Who I always loved. Nathan. Wings. Later. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, loves <laughs> Paul McCartney and Wings. Oh, tons.
1: Did you, did you see Wings back then?
0: No, I didn't because maybe they came to Pittsburgh in 1976. Yeah, I don't know if they did. But I don't know because my first show would have been the Love Gun Tour, the Kiss Tour at the Civic Arena. That was like my first concert. Nice. Nice. So, but there weren't, there weren't, there weren't many. I mean, I wish that I could time travel back and convince my parents to take me to see Queen.
1: Oh, yeah. I wasn't just- allowed to go to concerts at all. I remember when, when Bruce came with born in the USA, played three rivers and my brother got to go and I was devastated. I didn't really <laughs> at the time. I didn't, I was like, whatever. He got to go to a concert and I didn't get to go. Uh, what an event. At that point, I had only seen Laura Branigan perform at the downtown July 4th <laughs> <laughs> Ah, go. Oh she, my God. Totally loved it.
0: <laughs> Laura Brannigan? Laura Brannigan. She was great. Was <laughs> <laughs> her hit
1: Glory, Gloria? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Moving before, on. on. Before we get off Melt, we should talk about that gated drum sound because a lot of people associate that drum sound with Phil Collins in, in the air tonight, which is sort of kind of when that, obviously because that was such a big song, but Intruder was really where that so- where that sound came up and i've talked to lily white about this and and so the the producer of the phil collins record was hugh Padgham. hugh Padgham was the engineer on that peter Gabriel record on melt and so hugh Padgham is the one who gets all the credit for for that and rightfully so he he was he had a lot of lot to do with it but lily white also had a lot to do with it as well he gets written a little bit written out of that story but they it was a but it was a combination of a lot of people in the room that came up with that sound.
0: Okay, so what
1: is gated reverb? What does that mean? Basically, so that's a combination of things, the way that sound is good. But basically, what you're doing is you're basically hitting something that has a transient. So a drum is just a hit. It's a transient. And then the, the reverb in the room that comes after that, that's the reverb. So you could either make a reverb by sending it to a digital reverb, you could send it to a chamber, and it's just the echo of that sound. Like If you yell into a cannon, there's reverb. If you gate it, you cut it off. So basically you would allow it to come out for a second and then you can control the timing of when that reverb comes out. So if it's it's that sort of famous, when you hear the, the drum sound of In The Air Tonight, when that big fill comes in, that's gated reverb. So it's sort of, you hear the hit of the drum, you hear the room open up and then immediately close. And that became a very big popular 80s drum sound.
0: D- d- just by fucking around in the studios and, and well, thinking, it, well, how does we change? Thing,
1: Cause they have, so you have a talkback when you're in, in the studio where you could someone, uh, you know, in, in the control room can press the talkback. So they can, there's a microphone in the room that they can talk to whoever's in there. So if the drummer's there, can the drummer can hear the control room in their headphones, those talkback mics, especially on, on an SSL, which is what they did that on, um, which is the, the recording desk. They did that on, um, there's a compressor on it. So compressor takes the lowest sound and the highest sound volume wise and compresses them down. So not, so basically everything kind of is the same level and they, someone Phil Collins was just hitting a drum and someone pressed the talk back mic and then let it off. And so they, they got that sound and they were like, what the fuck was that? That's the best drum sound we've ever heard. And then they just sort of figured out a way to recreate that. That one drum fill. Has. In the air tonight. It's one of the greatest, <laughs> yeah. drum fills ever, if not the greatest drum fill of all time. I will say though, you know, it's one of the best drum fills to me, and not a lot of people agree with me on this, but I will, I will die on this hill. The the fill going into the first chorus of, of Thunderstruck. Yeah, the name is what you, you been
0: Thunderstruck. <laughs> Thunderstruck. Thunderstruck. Thunderstruck.
1: <laughs> that fill is phenomenal. It is so simple. It's so basic, and it's so. <laughs> That is Every time I hear that bill, I'm like, those people know what it's like to play a stadium.
0: Here's my favorite uh, Thunderstruck, use of Thunderstruck. This is the Jackson Hole Rodeo circa 2014, 2015. You have, over the PA, you have the Lord's Prayer. Nice. Then the Lord's Prayer goes into Star Spangled Banner, and then, Oh, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Pause. Then <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen
1: ever Welcome ever to the Jackson Rodeo What's that? Whoever thought of that idea knows how to work a crowd <laughs> yeah. Oh you get all three You get, you get Jesus oh. You get
0: Jesus, you get the US And then you get that fucking the, the devil That's the
1: roller coaster they took you on As a member of that
0: <laughs> audience The fourth Peter Gabriel album was released September of 1982 and hit number six in the U.K. and number 28 in the U.S. The album's second single, Shock the Monkey, became Gabriel's first top 40 hit in the U.S., reaching number 29. To handle American distribution, Gabriel signed with Geffen Records, which, unbeknownst to Gabriel, titled this record Security, to differentiate it from the first three. Gabriel's 1982 tour lasted for one year and became his first tour to make a profit. Recordings from this tour were then released on Gabriel's amazing live record, Plays Live, which came out in 1983. Can you imagine that? The record company changing the title of your record without you knowing it?
1: Now. And uh, I've heard stories about that a lot from a lot of different artists. Like, I, that was common current back then.
0: Was, that was was it really?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, because a lot of times if it was a foreign label, like your deal isn't necessarily always with them. Like sometimes you're they have subsidiaries of, of labels that they have deals with. And so you're on this label in this country, but in this label in this country. And they will just, you know, they're figuring like, well, they're not going to come here anyway. So just do what we're going to do.
0: I'm going to share one of the, my, the favorite store music business stories you told me back in the day. And I've never forgot it. I'm going to keep everyone anonymous, Okay. but I'm basically going to repeat the story. the story. Is. You said that one night, you know, things are rolling for you guys. You're, you're getting going. You've, you know, you got a hit or two out in the world and the record company takes you guys out to a super fancy dinner and you guys are with execs, you're with the full band. You know, you probably have a seven, $8,000 dinner somewhere. Maybe it's in LA. I don't remember where it was, but you saw the people basically say, ah, let's just charge this to the blank account. I'm going to keep the band anonymous, but it was another successful band. And you realize, like, oh, shit. If they're doing that to that band, they're going to do that to us.
1: Yeah. Whether or not that actually happened, like, they actually did it, (laughs) and that wasn't just someone, you know, talking shit, um, I, I don't know. But it was definitely a... They definitely said it. And then I definitely had a follow-up conversation where I was like, does that really happen? And the guy I was talking to was like, oh yeah, totally.
0: But God, I mean, but you guys have weathered, you guys have weathered so much to get to the year 2022 to be making records. You've you've weathered the ups and downs. You've weathered uh, one of the band members having success outside of the band. Uh, You've weathered musical tastes and genre changes, you know, but here you guys are in in 2022. Do you ever think like to yourself like god, this is so fucking cool that I get to 100%. do it with this group of people?
1: It's so rare that what we've been able to I mean the fact that especially the way that we've done it because like we've definitely done it collectively on our terms. Now those terms individually for us may not always be the same and there's that causes, you know, problems within the band, but as a whole this band is operated on the needs of the band. You know, so the fact that we still have a career is at all is amazing to me. But the fact that we still have a career, like, you know, we were supposed to go on tour. We, we still play the Hollywood bowl. We haven't put out a record in 10 years. We've toured one time since then. And we can still fill, you know, play those venues and and, and fill, fill seats. And it's, that's kind of shocking. And it's, it's not lost on me or any of us how, how fortunate we are for that that is so cool
0: and i've been thinking about this a lot lately because i just saw tears for fears well i
1: wanted to go to that so bad but i was in in new york incredible yeah i
0: I mean true truly incredible no i I bet and and i can't wait to see duran duran later on this summer at the hollywood bowl yeah and the thing that i've been thinking about like these aren't legacy bands they're bands that are still
1: making incredible current music
0: but tears for fears new record
1: is incredible
0: incredible it's so good And I think my theory on that is like somehow if you can get to this place 20 plus years on with basically your original unit intact, like the unit that created the thing that generated the fan base, if you can somehow get past year 20... You can then get into some sort of like rarefied air of continuing to make amazing music while at the same time enjoying sort of the fruits of your labor and the love that the
1: fan base has. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, totally, totally. I mean, you know, like in our case, like we were we were not a critic's darling band. Like people did not we got we caught a fair amount of critical shit. But there was a certain point where we sort of noticed that that changed. Not that people were like, oh my god, Matchbox Twenty is the greatest. You know. You know, we weren't on the cover of Rolling Stone. But people kind of sort of saw what we were doing, I think, which was, you know, we've always been a pop band. We, weren't, we came out in grunge and we sort of played the game for a minute because that's what we were supposed to do. But we were never that. We were always a pop rock band. And so as we sort of became more comfortable with that, and then people sort of in that world sort of started noticing that that's what we did, people just kind of left us alone. And we're just like, yeah, okay, they're cool, and and it's fine. And so that when that sort of went away, it was just sort of like, oh, we just exist. We just exist in our world, and we have a very devoted fan base that will come out and see us, and that will buy our record, and we can just continue to do that. And it's it's like I said, it's a rare thing. Not a lot of people get to do it. You, not a lot of people get a career in this. You get a time. A lot of people get a time. There's a lot of people who are like, you know, that this is their moment. and But outside of that, you're like, oh, God, that really lasted for two years. And then that was it. And then they spend the next 15 years trying to remake that happen. And sometimes that's, you know, has sad results. And in our case, it didn't. Thank God. Hi there.
0: After finishing the soundtrack to the film Birdie, starring Matthew Modine and Nicolas Cage, Gabriel shifted his musical focus from rhythm and texture to more straightforward pop songs. The result? So! was released in May of 1986 and reached number one in the UK and number two in the US. It remains Peter Gabriel's best selling album with over 5 million copies sold in the US alone. So produced three U.K. top 20 singles, Sledgehammer, Big Time, and Don't Give Up, a duet with the great Kate Bush. Sledgehammer went to number one in the U.S., Gabriel's only single of his career to do so, and knocked off Invisible Touch by his former band. In 1990, Rolling Stone ranked So at number 14 on its list of top 100 albums of the 80s. Us. Gabriel's sixth studio album was released on September 28, 1992, and features the Gabriel classic Steam and Digging in the Dirt. The album saw Gabriel address personal themes, including his first failed marriage and the growing distance between him and his eldest daughter at the time, which brings us to the end of our simple sort of classic Peter Gabriel era notes. Uh, Paul, I would say to you that I truly believe that so was the first CD that I bought. Oh, interesting. Uh, Honest to God. I think so was number one. And then I think it was that clash greatest hits with the red cover. It was a double greatest hits CD set. And then those, those original Beatles CD releases.
1: I don't think this is the first one I bought. But it's the first one I got, and I don't remember why I got it. It was either a record club, and that was one that arrived, or whatever, but it was LL Cool J.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would have never guessed that. I, 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 but I loved it. I, I loved it. It was, it was great. But, yeah, first, but I, mean, we, we, I mean, we have to spend a good amount of time talking about So, because so, that is sort of the pivotal entry point. Well, I, the floor is yours. Well, you know, it's funny, like, that period of time, you, you have So, you have, um, which is fifth record. You have Synchronicity, which is, uh, what, two years before, fifth record. Joshua Tree, fifth record. So you have all of these. Bands and artists were allowed to develop into making, they were allowed to get to that record, which we still consider to be some of the greatest records ever made. But they didn't make it on the first, the second, the third. Like, they started, like, melt. They're starting to get there. War, starting to get there. You know, it's so it's like they're perfect examples of, of, of that sort of thing that doesn't necessarily exist from a business level anymore. There's a lot of people who are making records now because you don't necessarily need a record label anymore. So there's a lot of people who are going there, but they don't have the financial backing that these guys got to have and basically do nothing else in their life but make music.
0: I think Purple Rain is Prince's fifth <laughs> studio record. Fifth,
1: yeah. This record is 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 sort of a key a key thing.
0: Well, am I wrong that nowadays if you if you don't hit it by number 3 or 4 even though the the as you said the traditional methods of creating a record in the studio system and releasing it are have changed a little bit but is it fair to say that if you don't get it by 3 or 4 now you're gone?
1: If you even I mean if you don't get by 3 or 4 singles. Like a lot of a lot of people that they'll get some singles and those, those singles will get now they're te- they use TikTok. I, I was just getting the low down on this because you know I've been out of it for I've been in the scoring world for the past few years, so it's sort of I've been kind of not as much in the modern selling music business. But yeah, TikTok is sort of the what used to be radio research is now you know how's it doing on TikTok? No shit. Yeah. Oh fuck. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, imagine, imagine, like you know, I mean, I, I, let's I, let's take Peter Gabriel's second record as a perfect example, the, the um, Scratch, the the Robert Fripp record, which is you know, I'm a huge fan, and I have a hard time with that record. Like, I have to really be in the mood to listen to it. There's not a lot of songs on there that that are immediately going to stay with you. It's more of like if I'm listening to it at all, it's more like I'm listening to it for textures. Imagine someone coming out with that record now on a major label and then getting us getting to make a third record it it wouldn't happen there's no way that Am- would happen amazing
0: yeah that's amazing uh, I, I guess they're just counting the, the algorithm lets them know how many kids are listening yeah. to whatever
1: yeah that's kind of the world but you know the flip side of that is any kid can make any record they want and put it out in the world i think there's pluses and minuses to that personally.
0: Will you, will you guys be, will there be pressure on you guys to create a viral something, a viral TikTok? You know,
1: a vi- I'm going to be 50 in a month. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not fucking going on TikTok. Come on now.
0: Like, oh my God.
1: No, I mean, will there be? I'm sure. I mean, yes. Will people make suggestions for that? We should do stuff uh, that we won't want to do most definitely. And that's their job. I get it. Like, you know, at the end of the day, a record label puts up a lot of money; they want to get their money back. I get it; they want to make money. I get it. We took the money to make the record, like we took the advance to make the record. We didn't pay for it ourselves, so we're like, "Yeah, you're our bank, and you're going to want this back." And we get it. But there, you know, there you have. To, I think you have to have a choice and what, like what you're willing to do.
0: Do you want to play that game or not? Th- there's also the hope of organic things happening. Like oh, yeah. it was a it was a dude on a skateboard. Holding on to the back of a truck, playing, yeah. you know, uh, exactly. "Dreams" yeah. by Fleetwood Mac, and drinking Ocean Spray. Yeah. that you know made Fleetwood Mac a few extra million dollars. I mean, look what's it's, happening with
1: Kate Bush right now. I mean, like, you know, that's crazy. That's it's crazy. I mean, you know, it's great that she got into that show, which is you know the biggest show. I think it's probably the biggest show on on TV. Yeah, but then then to have that effect, which I don't know about you, but like, I, I'm I'm such a huge fan of, of Kate Bush and, and have been for many, 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 many years. So it's like, I'm so excited for the amount of kids who are hearing that for the first time. Cause you that like all this, the music that we've been so lucky to listen to growing up in the seventies and into the eighties. Cause in my opinion, like the seventies is the best time for rock, mm. without a doubt. Mm. But the eighties mm-hmm. is the best time for pop. Mm-hmm. And by pop, yeah. I mean, like I'm considering Peter Gabriel in that world. I'm considering the police in that world. U2 is in that world. Madonna's in that world, like it's all sort of one. It's the MTV generation of, of of pop, and it really was the best time for that. And so we've got to hear all these songs, but imagine getting to hear them for the first time again. Like I would kill for some of that. Yeah.
0: yeah I think you you'll uh, appreciate the fact that um, I did a little dance when the Eddie character in Stranger Things oh, yes. held up an Iron Maiden "Peace of Mind" cassette and said, "This is music."
1: Did they interview you before they wrote that character?
0: <laughs> I know <laughs> he was amazing. The Dio Back, the Do Backpatch. I'm
1: like, thank it, you. It was every kid. I mean, that was my my neighbor, the kid down the street, the kid I went who sat across from me in 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 math, like. I knew that kid in so many forms. Sinister, sinister. He was the most sinister. 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 I think they were even too cool for D and
0: D. Okay, fair enough. That's totally fair. Yeah. I, I just, just knowing Western Pennsylvania as I do, I, I'm dying. If you ever find a picture of Sinister in an old yearbook,
1: please, oh, I, please. I'll, I'll look, I'll look. I, they have to be in there because they were like, they were the big band. They the we were okay. We were the one of these. They were like, they were the cool guys.
0: Uh, someone needs to do a coffee table book of just classic 80s high school bands. School bands. Winchester, <laughs> Sinister, <laughs> Reming- Remington, you know, <laughs> twisted steel,
1: you know. Just we like. had another one. We had another one who uh the, the drummer of this band became my drum teacher's there were two brothers and they were super, super kind humans. But their band was called Genghis Khan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And their their, um, their singer was this guy named Jim Struzzi. Super nice guy. Super, super, really super nice guy. But totally that guy. Super long hair, but like really good looking, like the classic <laughs> local band singer. And then he had an answering machine when you'd call him and and he, it would uh, be like some like Tolkien quote or something, you know. Jim Struzzi. Yeah, he was great. <laughs> they, were, they were great. And, and I learned how to play drums from, from the drummer of that band, a guy named Dave Blake. He was a uh, great drummer.
0: Unbelievable. Dude, I could do this all week. I, I mean, I'll, honestly, I'll, I'll, I could just stay here on Riverside and on, just talk to you. I get, this, is all, this is all that I want to do. Um, let's just put a pin in it. Kay. I'm just going to say this is round one. Beautiful. At a, at a at a at an appropriate time in the not too distant future, we will do round two because it's just I just I just want to hear more, and um and and I just want to thank you for fucking playing the game of the Brando Cast today.
1: I want to thank you for having me on the Brando Cast. It's been a pleasure. I I, I, I miss your face. You
0: okay. Well, let will we will make a plan. We need to make a plan. Beautiful. Okay. Fantastic. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing. So many great guests coming down the pike, but. Holy fucking shit, Pauly said fucking brought the thunder! And of course, the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens.